this morning. Let's stand together as we read John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 11. John 15, verses 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, that, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that, your joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I've got to say, I've been really excited um, to preach this sermon. John 15.5 is, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. In fact, it's, it's actually on my business card. Where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he that is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, I don't have one specific life verse because there are an infinite number of glorious truths throughout the Bible, but I, I love what this this verse in this passage teaches us. John, John 5 verses 1 to 11 has a lot to teach us about who God is and who we are. It is one of the, the richest passages in the New Testament when it comes to Christian living. It shows us the, the motivation and the means and the method for living the Christian life. If you are a Christian, you want to live the Christian life. You want to bear fruit for God. I would love for that to be the way that I, that I was remembered at the end of my life. I would love for, the, the, for my epitaph to read, He glorified God. But if God is not at the center of what we're trying to do, if He is not the motivation, the means, and the method, who is going to get the glory. Ten years ago, the, the truth of this passage was not even on my radar. The, the first time that this concept really came alive in my heart was when I was reading the, the manifesto for, for my mentor Steve Sconce's uh, mission organization, Co-Mission International, and right there at the top, they, he had John 15.5. From the outset, Steve wanted to highlight that the fruit comes from God. He wanted God to get the glory. Not long after that, I was reading John Piper's book, Brothers Were Not Professionals. It was written to those who were in Christian ministry. It was a gift from my friend Bryce in Australia as we had both become elders in our church. And this was at a particularly difficult time in the life of the church. 
Remember it like it was yesterday. In the book, Piper said that the only reason that we can lift a finger is that God is the one who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's quoting there Philippians 2.13. And when I read this, it really rocked me. I actually had to put the book down and ask whether I really believe that. And I had to admit, I had to confess that I didn't, I, 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 that, that I really didn't believe until that point that I could do nothing apart from God, that, that God was the one who was at work in me to, to do work for him and, and even to, to have the desire to do that work that didn't come from me. And I'd been serving earnestly, but in reality, the one that, that I had been serving was often myself. I had to be honest and admit that I was taking most of the credit, that I was actually stealing glory from God. Imagine the audacity, the audacity for me to take credit for redeeming my life. I had it all upside down, and the Lord used this this teaching to, to turn my ministry and my life the right way around. And this passage, my friends, is, is a compass to help keep us looking in the right direction. Now, this weekend, we're celebrating Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is, is a very special time for me. I, I have a lot for which to be thankful. Thanksgiving weekend, 21 years ago, I was in a psychiatric hospital with my brain so fried because of drugs that I could hardly string together three words to make a sentence, thinking that the television had hidden messages for me, so paranoid that, that I thought that, that my family had hired a hitman to have me killed. But as bad as all of those things were, they couldn't compare to my worst problem. In fact, all of those problems were the result of my worst problem. My worst problem was that I was a sinner under the judgment of a holy God. I deserved eternal hellfire, and unless I repented and turned to Christ, that is exactly where I was headed. But the Lord intervened. He stepped into my circumstances through a variety of different means. Leading up to that, that, that time, as, as somebody held up a, a sign, I was watching wrestling, and somebody held up a sign that said John 3.3, 3, about six months prior to these events. And, and John 3.3, 3, for those of you who don't know, says, in order to see the kingdom, you have to be born again. Now, I didn't know what born again was, but I knew that I wasn't. And then about a week prior to, to that Thanksgiving, Woman came into the store that I was working in and gave me a track that, that said, Smile, Jesus loves you. And it has it had John 3.16 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and Romans 3.23, and, and all those glorious passages. God was tilling the soil of my heart. Until that Sunday morning, when I sat there in the in the TV room in the in this psychiatric hospital, and turned on the TV, and there was there was a televangelist on there, not one of those those well-known televangelists, it's, it's after your money. I, I have no idea who this, who this man is. 
But he was saying anybody could be saved. You just need to turn away from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't, I, I didn't know enough religion to say that the, the sinner's prayer might be a good thing. I just said, Lord, whatever is left of this wreck of a life is yours. Just please forgive me. And he did. I wasn't looking for, for, for healing of my mind. I wasn't looking to, to, to break, the, the, uh, break any addiction. I wanted forgiveness. I knew that by God's grace that that was my worst problem. But God did heal my mind as well. And because Monday was a holiday, I had to wait until the Tuesday to be released. And after I met with a doctor and he, he told me I had a good prognosis, he really had no idea how good my prognosis is. He said I was free to go. So my mom came and picked me up that afternoon and brought me home to their place. And I, and I remember, many of you have heard this story, but, but I remember literally rolling around in the grass with joy because the burden of my guilt was gone because I had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. If you're in Christ, you have so much for which to be thankful. So much for which to be thankful. I felt like, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress when he, when he comes to the foot of the cross and the burden falls off his back and rolls into the sepulcher never to be seen again. But if, beloved, if you are in Christ, the burden has rolled off your back. Like the hymn says, burdens are lifted on Calvary. So imagine the audacity for a former drug-addicted psychiatric patient to take credit for anything, anything good. But how does, how does a psychiatric patient addicted to drugs become a pastor of a church? Jesus. Jesus. He did it. He did it all. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Nothing. That's not just true for me. That is true for all of us. Maybe as you sit here, you're where I was 21 years ago. Maybe you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You might not be locked up in a psychiatric hospital, but you are just as bound as I was. You are just as confused as I was. You might not be addicted to drugs, but you might be just as captivated as I was. Everything in your life might look nice and polished, on the outside, but maybe you're like a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. You might present quite well, but perhaps you are just as dead as I was. So how can you tell whether somebody is dead or somebody is alive? You will know them by their fruit, Luke 6.44. And this is a passage that we're going to come back 
to later on. A tree is known by its fruit. Or maybe you're where I was 10 years ago and where I still find the temptation to be. And sadly, sometimes I still take the credit. Maybe you're zealous in service, as zealous as I was, but maybe it's really just all about you. Ask yourself, do you serve in the same way when nobody else knows what you're doing? How do you feel if nobody thanks you or encourages you for what you're doing? Do you complain if you feel like you're the only one that's serving and giving and everybody else is taking? Do you get annoyed if somebody else is getting the attention that you think you deserve and your gifts are not being recognized? Now, there's plenty of other diagnostic questions that you could be asking, but these questions help us to reveal why we do what we do. It's really not ultimately about what we do. For the Pharisees, it was all about what they do. Everything was external. Everything was on the outside, but their hearts were dead. And Jesus always takes it back to the heart. Ted Tripp really drove that point home on Friday night and Saturday. It's all about the heart. Because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the, that the mouth speaks. It's out of the overflow of the heart that, that sin comes. We need to do right things that flow from a right heart. So if you're wondering here this morning whether you're dead or alive, or the Holy Spirit is convicting you that your world is upside down too, that you are taking the credit I pray that in the, in the power of the Spirit that this passage will help to turn your world and my world the right way around. That it would, it would be, as I said earlier, a compass that would help us to be pointed in the right direction. Because let's face it, we all need to be readjusted here. All of us. This passage will help us to do that. Now remember that here with John 15, these, these are among the last words that Jesus preaches, teaches to his disciples before he goes to the cross. The disciples were scared, they were discouraged, they were confused. And after comforting them in, verse, in chapter 14 by telling them that they had peace with God, he told them that he would give them the Holy Spirit, that he himself would come back to them, that they were loved by the Father. That Jesus was giving them a peace that the world will never know. The peace that Jesus gives his disciples is real peace. It's eternal peace. It's the peace that passes all understanding. But those in the world, those in the world are at war with God. They're in open rebellion against God. They will have no peace in this world, but far less in the one to come. So now here in chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, Jesus comforts his disciples with, with what Herman Ritterboss refers to as a graphic elaboration of the spiritual fellowship that Jesus had promised in chapter 14. 
a fellowship that he will maintain with his disciples after his departure. Jesus uses an extended metaphor or an allegory about the vine, the vine dresser, and fruitful and unfruitful branches. Now, Israel was an agricultural society, and grapes were one of their major crops. Jesus is speaking to them in a language that they would have understood. Now, here in Kelowna, we live in wine country. We're surrounded by vineyards. But most of us here, in fact, apart from, from Mark and, and Paulina, very few of us really have any real understanding of viticulture. Very few of us have any understanding about grapevines and, and how that whole thing works. If you go to a vineyard right now, you'll see that the, that the, the vines are covered with, with red and, and, and purple and green grapes and that the, they're full of, of green leaves. You really don't actually didn't have to go that far. If you look on the fence just over there, you, the, our neighbor is growing, growing tons of Concord grapes. Now she, she actually told us that we can help ourselves um, to, to them. Don't go on her property, but, but you can, um, she can feel free to pick some of those grapes because she's finished with them. But if you look closely, you'll see that the, that the, the grapes aren't actually growing on the vine itself, that the, the the, 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 the vine is the woody part. And there's, there's small branches coming out from that main vine, and it's on those, it's on the, on those smaller branches where the grapes are produced. But if you drive past a vineyard in a couple of months' time, what are you going to see? The grapes are going to be gone. The, the green leaves are going to be gone. And all that will be left is that, is that woody main vine. You'll especially see that in older grapevines. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is teaching here, you use the same method that you would use to interpret a parable. When interpreting a parable, the key elements of the parable make up the main points. The same is true with this metaphor. As I said, there's four key elements. The vine, the vine dresser, fruitful branches, and unfruitful branches. Branches, and each one of them tells us something vitally important. We're introduced to each of these, these key elements in verses 1, or two, one and 2, which, which also serves as an introduction for the whole allegory. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So this week we're going to focus on the vine, the vine dresser, fruitful branches, and unfruitful branches. And then next week, Lord willing, we will talk about how to abide. How to abide. So first of all, the vine. The vine. Right there at the beginning of chapter 1, Jesus says, I am the vine. This is the seventh and final of, of Jesus' I am statements. Earlier he declared, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he says, I am the vine. So in our, in our Bible, where do we first hear the words, I am, used? In Exodus chapter 3. When the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and, and, and tells Moses that, that he has heard the cries of his people, that he is going to use Moses to deliver the people out of bondage in Israel, 
Moses balks at it. He really doesn't want the job. And so God tells him, I will be with you. And then God tells Moses to go to the people. And he says, Moses says, well, if I go to the people, who, who, who's, what are they going to say? Who are they going to say that I'm, I'm coming in the name of? What's his name? What shall I say to them? So God says in, in verse 14, I am who I am. Say to them, I am has sent me to you. This is a statement of being. God is the one who is. In Hebrew, this is Yahweh. Jesus is intentionally using this term to reveal his true identity. He is saying one more time, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. But why a vine? Why does Jesus use, use the, the terminology of a vine? I mean, the, the bread of life and the light of the world and so on are, are pretty self-explanatory. But why a vine? Because Israel saw themselves as God's vine. It was a vital part of their identity. And throughout the Old Testament, we find reference after reference to Israel as God's vine. Their coins were minted with the image of a vine on them. And there above the gate of, of Herod's temple, there was a, a huge golden vine. And Israel was God's vine. But something went wrong. If you look at, at Psalm chapter 80, please turn to Psalms chapter 80, verse 8. We read that the Lord brought a vine out of Egypt. He cared for it and it flourished in verses 9 to 11. But then suddenly in verses 12 to 13, the Lord seems to have turned his back on that vine. And then in Psalms 14 and 15, the psalmist appeals to him to turn back and to have favor on his vine. See there the reference in verse 15 to the branch whom you have made strong for yourself, or some Bibles would say that the son that you have made strong for yourself. Israel was God's son, but there was another son coming. And verse 16, enemies have destroyed God's vine. And then again in verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. This is clearly pointing to God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 5. This is another prominent passage that speaks of, of Jesus as the vine. Or sorry, that speaks of Israel as the vine. In verse 1, we see a vineyard set on a fertile hill. And then in verse 2, the Lord prepared the soil and planted it with choice vines. He protected it by building a watchtower. Anticipating a harvest, he built a wine vat in the middle of it. But what did it produce? Wild grapes. Verses 3 and 4, God asked Israel to, to judge between him and his vineyard. What more could he have done for it? When he looked for the harvest, why did he receive only wild grapes? 
And we see the judgment in verses 5 and 6 where God destroys that vineyard. He removes its protection. He no longer cares for it. He commands the, the clouds no longer to rain on it. And in verse 7, he says directly that the vineyard that he is speaking of is Israel. He sought justice, but there was oppression. He sought righteousness, but there was an outcry. The prophet Jeremiah says, says very similarly in, in Jeremiah 2.21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Became a wild vine because it, it, it was a wild vine. Because everything was not meant to, to culminate in Israel. Israel proved faithful, so it was cut off. Jesus is the true vine, and he would be fruitful and would never be cut off. Israel is a vine. Jesus is the vine. He is the true vine. He is the archetypical Israelite, the one to whom Israel pointed. It's all about Jesus. Now, I believe from many passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament that there is a future for Israel, for national Israel, as I believe there will be a time of revival in the midst of the Jewish nation. But Israel is never meant to be an end unto itself. Israel was meant to culminate in Christ. In Christ. So now let's look at the, the vine dresser. The vine dresser. The vine dresser, as Jesus says, is God the Father. The vine dresser cares for the vine. And we've seen from, from Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 how the vine dresser clears the ground, how the vine dresser prepares the soil, how the vine dresser plants the vine, how, how he, how he then, then carefully cares for the vine as it grows, and then how he is to reap a harvest from the vine. But he also performs two other vital functions. He pairs the vine and he prunes the vine. Look there at verse 2. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. He pairs them. He cuts them off. Now, Jane and I are, are rookie gardeners. We, we planted a whole bunch, probably too many, tomato plants in our garden. But in, in our ignorance, we didn't pair away the unfruitful branches. So what's the result? You can see it there next to the parsonage. It's a tangled mess. I've never seen tomato plants grow so big. It's actually astonishing. You almost think you could, you could climb up there and find giants. They grew into one big mass of green. Now, we did get tomatoes, but they're hard to find. You have to dig under all the unfruitful branches to find where the tomatoes are. And far too often, we've seen tomatoes that have just fallen to the ground and rotted because we couldn't even find them amidst all those tomato vines. 
But much of the energy from the plants had also gone into sustaining those branches that bear no fruit. Unfruitful branches have sucked life from the fruitful branches. Unfruitful branches have sucked life from the fruitful branches. And there are so many parallels there in Christian ministry. But how much more fruit would we have gotten if we had cut off those unfruitful branches? The Father is obviously an infinitely better gardener than I will ever be. He, he cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. And he knows the proper time. He knows when to do that. Ryan Fullerton, my pastor in Louisville, spoke of the peach tree in his backyard. He said that he wouldn't go out to his peach tree in May and find little nubs of peaches and, and just cut down the tree because there was no mature fruit on the tree. If he saw fruit growing, even immature fruit, it's usually a good sign. But come July... If those peaches had not matured, it's a very bad sign. Something is desperately wrong with the tree. Now let's consider the other role of the vine dresser. Every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes. He prunes it. Now the Greek verb that is, is used here is actually kathero, which means cleanse. And so some Bibles still, still, I think the King James uses the word purge. But when you, when you read on in verse 3, you'll see, you'll see that, that, that actually, that the word cleanse actually makes, makes more sense here, but they often translate in order to, to keep the, the metaphor um, more, more compact. The vine dresser goes through the vineyard, carefully inspecting the vines. Now, this might seem counterintuitive, but he, he goes up to these vines and he, he very carefully nips pieces here and there off so that the harvest will be more fruitful. God's pruning shears are razor sharp and he wields them with perfect precision. But if branches had nerves, I'm sure that the pruning process wouldn't be very pleasant. I imagine if somebody was to come along with garden shears and prune off the end of one of your fingers. It wouldn't feel very nice. But sometimes God's pruning process in our lives feels like that, doesn't it? Sometimes the pruning process that God takes us through is painful, sometimes very painful. Think about, about times in your life that have been the hardest. Aren't they the times that you have grown the most in Christ, that you've grown the most like Christ? Beloved, our circumstances come to us from the hand of our Heavenly Father. They come to us from the one who knows us intimately, who loves us infinitely, who is omniscient. He knows everything 
that will ever take place because he's ordained everything that has ever taken place but is not yet is still not the author of sin but he uses those circumstances in our lives to prune us and to shape us if you talk to to a godly person who has been through significant trials they will often tell you that as hard as, as those trials were, they wouldn't trade them for anything because of the joy that they received in growing intimacy with their Lord, because of the growth that they saw as, as the Lord used those circumstances to shape them, to make them more like Christ. What areas of your life need pruning? What are the things in your life that are causing you, you to be unfruitful? Turn, please, for a moment to Hebrews chapter 12. We're told in Hebrews 12, 1, that we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice there, it's, it's not just sins that we're to put off. Pruning will take care of those, but it's every weight, it's every weight, everything that distracts us from focusing on our God and loving him more deeply. Well, we're looking there in Hebrews chapter 12, jump down to, to verses 5 and 6, where the writer says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved of him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Beloved, by pruning us, God is caring for us. He is treating us as sons. Then look down in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful and rather than, than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we call to mind the fact that the one who is doing the pruning in our lives is our Heavenly Father. And he's doing it so that we will bear more fruit for his glory. That The pruning becomes a lot easier to bear. We entrust ourselves to his providential care. As we grow, as the life of the vine flows into us. So now let's look at the, the fruitful branches. The fruitful branches. In verses 3 to 5, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He'd said this earlier in John chapter 13, verse 10, when he said, The one who has bathed need not wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he says, And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
Jesus had already cleansed them. So they didn't need more than a touch-up here and there. They were clean. But he had to qualify that statement in chapter 13. He said, but not all of you. Why? Because Judas was still there in their midst. Judas was in the room. So they weren't all clean. But now in chapter 15, with Judas gone, doing what he was, his despicable and vile deed, he could declare without qualification, you are clean. You are clean. And notice there that the, the agent of cleansing is the word. It's the word, and we're going to return to that next week. Now, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus uses the word abide ten times in this passage. So this is obviously an important concept that he wants to drive home. To abide is to remain, to reside, to live in and to with, to live in and with Jesus. This is an imperative, it is a command. Jesus is saying, as Leon Morris explains, abide in me and see that I abide in you. Disciples are to live such lives that he will continue to abide in them. But it's reciprocal. We abide in Jesus, and Jesus abides in us. There is a, there is a mutual indwelling. And in order to bear fruit, we need to receive vitality from Jesus. We need his strength to flow in and through us. In my gardening adventures, occasionally I would, I would trip over the overgrown tomato branches and, and break off a branch that had, had unripe fruit on it. What would happen to any little unripe tomatoes once that branch was broken off from the rest of the plant? They would shrivel up and rot. The same is true for us. In order to be fruitful, we must abide in the vine. Now, although fruitfulness here can, can refer to obedience or, or possibly to making disciples, I, I believe that the fruit that Jesus is talking about here is spiritual fruit. In Galatians 5, verses 16 to 24, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are sexual immorality and idolatry and enmity and strife and envy and so on. But the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's fruit singular. It's, it's, it's all a package. It's not kind of like a, a checklist. It's like, oh, I got eight out of nine, or I got, I got six out of nine. If you were in Christ... If you are in Christ, these things, this fruit, will be evident in your life. Maybe not fully mature, but there and growing. 
And if you're abiding in Christ, you won't bear just a little fruit. You will bear much fruit for the glory of God. But beloved, abiding is not just for faithfulness. It's not just the tomatoes that would shrivel up if the branch was broken off. The branch itself would die. Abiding is a command, but it's also a promise. Whether it's tomatoes or whether it's grapes, the branch doesn't hang on to the vine by itself. Now, I'm not a really good gardener, but I know that. Beloved, we abide in Jesus in the strength that he provides. We abide in Jesus because he abides in us. We are faithful to him because he is faithful to us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And that includes being faithful. But then in verse 6, Jesus speaks of the unfruitful branches. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We saw in verse 2 that those who are, who are not abiding in Jesus, Jesus are cut off by the vine dresser. And they wither like those broken tomato branches. They're burned. But they're burned not just with a temporary fire, they're burned with an everlasting fire that will never be quenched. So what's Jesus teaching here? Is he teaching that you can lose your salvation? We all know people who seem to be powering on for the Lord but have walked away. And we can't know for certain until the end. But you will know them by their fruit. Luke 6, 43 and 44. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if, if the fruit of somebody's life is, is characterized by sin and rebellion, by the absence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then this person is not saved. This person is not saved. It's possible to have a, have a superficial relationship with Jesus, a relationship that is, is merely external. Think about, about what had happened, what had just happened in chapter 13. With Judas. He had had a superficial relationship with Jesus. He was not genuinely regenerate. He was never born again. If you turn to, to Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, 
In John 17, he prays, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, we who are faithful are faithful because of God's faithfulness to us. Because of God's faithfulness to us. If God left us on our own, she would never do, even for a second. We would immediately degenerate into the same pit that we first crawled out of. But God is faithful. Now, Jesus here isn't talking about the occasional stumbling. If you follow the most godly person around, you'll see that that there's going to be times that they're going to fall back into sin. There's going to be times that they're not going to look very holy. Think about, about King David, the man after God's own heart, who committed adultery and murder. But what happened at the end? When Nathan the prophet came to, to convict him, to, to, to challenge him with his sin, David repented. And we have that, that glorious Psalm 51 as, as the, the psalm of David's repentance. But if you are a Christian, you will be characterized by good fruit. Please turn with me just as we close to to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And John goes on to say that that Jesus came, he appeared to take away sins. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If we are abiding in Jesus, we do not keep on sinning. Now, John is not talking about sinless perfection here. He's contrasting a life that is characterized by by disobedience and rebellion from a life that is characterized by obedience and love for God. Verse 8. Sorry, verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, that's Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And he goes on. So what is your life characterized by? Are you characterized by obedience? Or are you characterized by rebellion? What is your relationship with the vine? As you sit here this morning, examine yourself. What is my relationship with the vine? Am I abiding in Christ? If so, the fruit is there. 
But it's fruit not for your glory, it's fruit for God's glory. Revelation 4, chapter 10, as, as the saints are gathered before the throne, they, they, what happens to the, the crowns that they have received? They cast them at the feet of Jesus. They know that, that none of the good works that they did came from them. They came through Jesus. That Jesus did the work. But maybe you're sitting here this morning unsure that you're even truly born again. There is no greater danger than the person who thinks that they are saved when they are not. Paul tells us to examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. Examine yourself. Ask those who are closest to you, is my life characterized by the fruit of the Holy Spirit and growth in the same? I would encourage each one of you to do that this afternoon. As you sit down with your families, ask them. I'm not talking about fruit of something that, that, that you did years ago. Not about the decision that you made when you were, when you were a teenager. Is your life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit today? And that's how you will know whether you are genuinely abiding or whether you are not. And next week we'll talk about how to abide in Christ. Let's pray together.